welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Dan Byman, was fresh out of school when he took a job as an analyst for the CIA. Byman was a generalist, and they put him on a backwater Persian golf desk in the late 1980s. Then Saddam invaded Kuwait, and the U.S. led a massive military operation to evict the Iraqi army from Kuwait. His memos suddenly had an audience at the highest reaches of government. That experience led Byman to a career studying the Middle East and global terrorism. He's the author of numerous books on international terrorism and is director of research at the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. But most importantly for me, he was the director of the Security Studies Program at Georgetown eight years ago when I was a master's student there. We have a great conversation about his fascinating career in and out of government, which also includes serving on the 9-11 Commission. We discuss terrorism more broadly and the international relations of the Middle East. We kick off with a brief discussion about what seems to be a weakening alliance between Saudi Arabia and the USA. As always, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to subscribe on iTunes, get the app, email me, check out past interviews. And if, if you are a regular listener, thank you. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes or emailing me suggestions of people to interview or topics to cover. And now here is my conversation with Dan Byman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. There are a lot of historic ties between the United States and Saudi Arabia, and they revolve, I think, at least around two things. Uh, one is that the oil relationship, and this is kind of a no-brainer for anyone who's you know, followed the region for a minute, Saudi Arabia is the world's most important swing producer of oil, the United States as a, both a tremendous um, consumer in general, but also in terms of kind of, you know, caring about the stable supply to the world market. So right there, there's a relationship of tremendous mutual interest. But Saudi Arabia was also a relatively um, pro-American force in the Middle East historically. It was very anti-communist. Uh, it was anti-Iran, um, you know, which the United States has been for quite some time. And in general, the Saudis were comfortable with America playing a strong role in the region, which is what successive U.S. administrators want. Um, so you had this um, kind of mutual relationship. And then after 9-11, you had a very different element introduced, which was both a positive and a negative for the relationship, and that was counterterrorism. Now, on the downside, uh, Saudi Arabia was seen as part of the counterterrorism problem. Of course, you know, on 9-11, it became clear when 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis, but Saudi Arabia was also seen as uh, funding a variety of groups. And I should be careful here. I should say Saudis were seen, not the, not the government. Um, in addition to funding, uh, many of the volunteers were Saudis. Uh, the biggest number of foreign fighters today in Syria um, come from Saudi Arabia. 
And also the religious establishment was seen as supporting an array of radical ideas that while not necessarily you know, supportive of al-Qaeda or the Islamic State directly, were kind of laying a very fertile ground for these groups. Uh, but the flip side was Saudi Arabia was a very important ally in counterterrorism. If you wanted to sta- stop uh, terrorist funding, you had to work with Saudi Arabia. If you wanted to um, go after suspected terrorist groups, Saudi Arabia was a perfectly logical place to begin. And Saudi Arabia became a very close ally for counterterrorism, even as it was part of the terrorism problem. Uh, so there's a lot holding things together. Um, at the same time, there are some very serious problems. Um, so I, I would imagine, though, we might be at something of, of an inflection point in this long relationship. I mean, it seems like long-term trends, um, at least on, on, on the oil con- production and, and consumption uh, side of things, I mean, you know, the U.S. over the long term will, will you know, probably trend away from its reliance on oil or, or Saudi oil in particular. Um, you know, meanwhile, the, the U.S. is, you know, having a, a warmer or at least a relationship with uh, Iran, the, 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 the great kind of regional rival. Um, so is this kind of like the, the, the final moments in, in which um, that historic relationship is, is strong? I mean, it seems like long-term trends seem to suggest that the relationship will, will just weaker over time because of, of broader structural reasons. Uh, that certainly could happen. I, I tend to be a, a skeptic on that. Uh, part of it is that long-term predictions on the oil market have almost invariably been wrong. If you look at what you know, no one uh, predicted the plummeting, or I shouldn't say no one, very few people predicted the plummeting of the price of oil that's happened in the last couple of years. Um, conversely, people were not predicting the massive increases. And you see this happen again and again, this kind of boom and bust cycle. Um, so I'm not sure where long-term energy trends uh, will go. If I, if I knew, uh, I would invest and uh, retire quite happily. Uh, but I think it's at least quite plausible they'll still see um, a major reliance on oil. And um, Saudi Arabia is a swing producer for the world market. So the way I was taught to think of the oil market is that it's really a giant bathtub. And you have all these different spouts, and one spout might be named Venezuela, one spout might be named the North Sea, uh, and the biggest spout is Saudi Arabia. But it's all going into the same bathtub. So when people are buying um, uh, petroleum, they're buying from the world market, not from individual countries. And therefore, Saudi Arabia, as both a large supplier and as the biggest swing producer, has a huge influence in the overall supply and thus the overall price, even if the United States is not buying from Saudi Arabia directly, even if its prices are domestic, if its suppliers are domestic. So Saudi Arabia will continue to be a key player. Um, And then you have a region where the United States has relatively few natural allies. There isn't a Canada. There isn't a United Kingdom. There isn't a Japan. There isn't a country that, in general, is a strong, powerful, stable country that shares U.S. values. The exceptions would be Israel, would be Turkey, would be countries that are in some ways not at the heartland of the Arab world for historical and ethnic reasons and religious reasons. So the United States is going to need allies, and it only has imperfect choices, whether it's Egypt um, or Saudi Arabia or Jordan. None of these are ideal. So I think the relationship by necessity will remain close, even though I don't think it will be the same sort of intimate, friendly relationship the United States has with other countries. Um, so there's been a lot of commentary in, in uh, this week and in recent weeks uh, about the 
international diplomatic and geopolitical reasons why um, the Saudi government would have decided to execute this this Shiite cleric. Um, I'm wondering, though, what domestic reasons, what domestic political reasons might have existed for them to feel compelled to do that? Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we're at a certain um, low point in, in oil prices, and there have been reports that Saudi Arabia is having to rely on its cash reserves to extents that it hasn't in the past, and is possibly even, you know, increasing the price of some consumer goods uh, for people inside the kingdom. Um, to what extent did those issues factor in to Saudi Arabia's decision, do you think, uh, to to follow up uh, with this execution, and why? Um, I look at the foreign policy of many countries in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, as primarily driven by domestic politics. So you mentioned the falling price of oil and Saudi's likely economic problems. Um, having an enemy, in this case Iran, having an enemy in terms of a, a demonized Shia population, uh, has political advantages. This is something that you know, Putin has done in Russia and is a, a fairly time-honored trick that authoritarian regimes use. But I think even more important, this is a government that's always been somewhat, I will say, more moderate, as incredible as that may sound to many people, uh, than its own people. And so this is a people where there's a very strong anti-Iran, anti-Shia sentiment. And so the idea of standing up to Iran, standing up to the Shia, is politically popular. And especially among the clerical establishment, and there are many, many supporters in Saudi Arabia. So from the point of view of many Saudis, this is a no-brainer, right? That this man is criminal, this man is in bed with Iran, this man is supporting violence. And that if you're going to, especially if you're going to execute people who are supposedly linked to al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, of course you would take care of an enemy like Nimr. And you know, in the United States, we can look and say, no, this guy wasn't in the same league and so on. But from the ordinary Saudi's point of view, this one is you know, strongly supported. And so the government's legitimacy increases from this. Um, if you would have to like say weigh the, um, what you know, percent of a decision um, domestic politics factor in as opposed to international politics, would you say it was mostly for domestic political reasons or mostly for sort of geostrategic reasons? Um, I would say mostly for domestic political reasons, uh, but there's a scholar uh, of Saudi Arabia who I admire greatly, uh, Greg Gauze, um, and he always begins his remarks in Saudi Arabia by pointing out that there are about 10 or 15 people in the country who know why they make the decisions they do, and they're all named Al Saud, and the rest of us are just kind of guessing. Ah. <laughs> so I don't want to overstate the degree of certainty when I'm saying this, but when I've looked at their foreign policy in the past, what has been clear over time is often decisions we thought that had a you know, strategic direction were driven in large part by domestic politics that we weren't aware of at the time. Um, so I'd love to switch gears now uh, and talk a little bit of, uh, about you. So you, you know, first came on my radar probably in 2000. I think I started the, the security studies program in 2007, and you were the director. Thank you for directing an excellent uh, grad program. I, it's funny, you know, I've, I, I interview, frankly, a lot of the people who are on the syllabus of those like 101 programs. Like I've had, I've had like Jervis and, and Robert Pape and, and a whole bunch of you know Stephen Walt and all those people on 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 this show. And I, I would not have had them on this show had I not read them in the program that you directed. So thank you. Um, my pleasure. That that's actually kind of a wonderful compliment, right? The idea. Simply, I feel pleased that you were able to, you know 
kind of reach out to these incredible people because I think they have a lot to teach us all. It's great. And, and you know, it's, it's a little different than, you know, reading them uh, in international security, the journal, like, you know, talking to them like a human being. You, you sort of understand, I think, a little more not uh, only about the ideas, but like where their ideas originated, like what their aha moments were. And it's been a really um, gratifying experience for me to you know, be able to, to reach out to, to them. And I think I, I credit a lot in my, my grad school program. But I, I'd love to learn more about you along those lines. So where are you from? Um, I grew up, I was born in Chicago, but I really grew up in Minnesota. My father was also a professor and uh, taught at a, a branch of the University of Minnesota in Winona, which is a small town along the Mississippi. And um, I moved around a couple times, but that's where I spent most of my childhood. What did he teach? Uh, he taught history and uh, European history was his focus. Okay. Did that um, uh, trickle down to you? Did you, did you have kind of interesting conversations about European history? What, what, what was his focus in European history? Uh, his focus was 16th century British history. So there's a, you know, most academics, uh, we tend to you know, study things relatively narrowly, but he taught broadly and it was a very intellectual household. So both, you know, kind of broader ideas that come from the academy, but also a lot of, a lot of books, a lot of novels were very much part of my childhood. So I would say my, my formative intellectual development, both my parents were kind of big readers and we had a very lively set of family discussions with my brothers as well. So uh, it was a pretty, you know, boisterous but uh, but friendly house growing up. Did you think from an early age that you were going to kind of follow in your father's footsteps and, and pursue that PhD? Um, no, not at all. Um, I didn't really think about my future the way, uh, I would say, frankly, your generation is much more focused than mine was. Um, when I graduated from college, my goal was, you know, a job that paid so I could pay off my loans. It was you know, almost that simple. And I had, um, I applied to, you know, 30 different jobs and, you know, didn't get most of them and ended up coming to Washington to, to do some work for the government. And, uh, well, where, where did you go to school? Where, um, where did you I, go to your, uh, to undergrad? My undergrad was at Amherst, uh, a small college in Massachusetts. Yeah. That's a liberal arts college. Of course. What did you study there? Um, I studied uh, primarily comparative religion. Hey, that's what I did. Oh. I, was a, I love comparative religion. I miss it. I, I really do miss it. I was a comparative religion undergrad major at Tufts in the late 90s, early 2000s. I, I, I love it. And, and um, But it was, for me, uh, always more um, just like, like a purely intellectual pursuit. I, I knew I was always kind of interested in politics and international affairs, and I didn't um, really see myself pursuing a career in comp religion. Uh, what about you, though? What, what drew you to, to that field? Um, it was really just a couple of great professors where uh, I was, you know, I'd take a variety of classes and the professors I liked best were in religion. And it, it combined a lot of things I liked, it, a lot of ideas, um, a lot of history, uh, a lot in kind of social movements and, you know, and cultures. So there are a lot of different, you know, things that go into studying religion that all of which were interesting to me. But really, in the end, it was a few very impressive, caring, charismatic professors mm -hmm. that made the difference. Was there like a particular religion or, or course of religious study that attracted you? Um, this will imply more depth than I had, but uh, one professor I loved <coughs> was a specialist on the uh, uh, Hebrew Bible and um, kind of uh, on, and folklore in particular. So a lot on the mixture mm -hmm. of those two. And uh, another professor who was um, uh, focused on American Protestant, uh, trans and American Protestantism, but historic trends. Mm -hmm. And that was, so, so those were things I focused on quite a bit. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So one of one ways in which, you know, the real world impacted my study of comparative religion was that the head of, of our department at, at Tufts, 
uh, was a Sudanese guy, I think, and he was in Sudan on 9-11 when 9-11 happened and couldn't get back in the country for like several years. And so they had to, I, I never took his class because, you know, I was, I was a, uh, a junior when 9-11 happened. Um, and so I never took a real good Islam class from a professor at Tufts. They had to like find someone from the community to, to come and teach. That, that is really remarkable. I mean, it is, you know, this kind of one thing I always try to convey to my students is it's really the role of chance in shaping so many things. And that's to me a great example, right, of something that, you know, pushed you in an intellectual direction mm-hmm. that might have happened otherwise. Um, so, so where did you end up after Amherst? Um, after Amherst, uh, I briefly was at the Department of Energy, uh, which had a program that was was quite bureaucratic and for me quite frustrating, uh, but it was a job and I was, I was very excited about a that. A good government <laughs> job, of, of, if that, you know? Yeah, I mean, what, what struck me, what I didn't realize at the time, I was perhaps still at, but I was quite naive at that 21, was uh, I wanted to work for the government and I thought that was actually something, that that was a meaningful statement as opposed to the incredible diversity that is the government. And so when the government hired me, I thought I had done it. And I didn't realize that you know there are good government jobs and bad ones. There are uh, things that are exciting and boring. And so I was at the Department of Energy, but I had also, in my flurry of applications, I had also applied to the CIA. And um, eventually, you know, after some relatively long uh, security clearance issues and so on, eventually uh, they made me an offer. And I was, I was delighted to have the opportunity to leave the Department of Energy. So why do you think the CIA uh, found your application attractive? I wonder about that uh, in hindsight, and that's, that's not meant to be modesty, but um, what they, at least at the time, seemed to be hiring were people who were smart generalists. So they had an exam that I suspect I did well on, and I had a good academic record. Uh, so that might be part of it, but I, I really knew nothing. And that's not modesty. I think there are very few 21, 22-year-olds who have in-depth knowledge. And their approach was, well, we'll teach you, right? work here. And it's, it was really a career approach. Right? So many jobs where they expect you to come in for a couple of years and then leave. There, the, I think the idea was, you know, for the first five years or so, we'll take a loss on this guy because he doesn't know what he's doing. But over time, we'll build him up into a capable um, analyst. And then the payoff will begin. And I'm not sure that's a bad model, but I'm not sure how well it works for, especially for for younger generations where people move around a lot more. Well, and and the, just the, the the security clearance and the security uh, concerns are are just intense. I mean, I know so many people who you know just like squeaky clean, but for what you know, reason that or another were just denied you know that level of clearance required to work at the CIA. And it's I mean it's frustrating to me because it seems like a very broken process where it's not to me, I, I won't pretend to know whether any individual deserves to be cleared or not. Um, but what I will say is often the process takes, you know, years or at least many months. And it's especially hard for the people who are most desirable, who are people who have um, knowledge and experience in foreign cultures. And as, as a result, they lose the best people. Mm-hmm. Because right? the, the implication is that if you have knowledge of foreign cultures, somehow there's a chance that you might be some sort of foreign agent or swayable uh, in, in right. some way. And so it's really hard if you have like international experience to actually like work for the CIA. Uh, exactly. And, and beyond that, you just have lots of personal connections, mm-hmm. right? So are any of them suspect and so on. And this is something that, you know, is 
they do have a process for going through it. And I do think for many people it eventually works. It's just very slow. And to me, it's just it's extremely frustrating because it means the best people find other jobs. And you know, I found another job while I was waiting, right? Now I hated it. So therefore I was happy to leave. But if I had liked it, I wouldn't have gone. And uh, a lot of and the better people will find jobs they like. Uh, so so I assume it was probably like the late eighties, early nineties that you landed in, in the CIA? That's right. Uh, so what were you doing? Like, what, where, where did they put you? How did they train you? Well, um, again, to go back to the role of chance. Uh, I was initially doing work looking very broadly at instability. And I was excited by it. I really liked the people there. The issue was interesting. I, I turned down a, a particular program with it that was rather prestigious because I wanted to be in this one. Um, and early on, I was working on... Uh, I had I had knowledge of, of Protestantism, as I mentioned from my studies. So I was going to look at how it was uh, reshaping Latin America, and they said, "Well, you know, we we kind of have that. Um, uh, someone's written on these things, so why don't you write on look in the Muslim Brotherhood?" And I said, "Sure." And what what I realized now was they just wanted me to practice my writing and analysis. They weren't going to treat my my research particularly seriously. Um, and so I worked on it for a little bit, and then they abolished my entire office. Huh. And this is the government, right? So if it happens in the private sector, I'd be out of a job. Uh, but here, they were kind of stuck with me. Uh, so the question then became, what do we do with Byman? And, well, what does Byman know? Well, he's working on the Muslim Brotherhood, so he must know the Middle East, right? The fact that I had several weeks of knowledge uh, was not something they they factored in. <laughs> and, you know, and again, they're, they were just scattering me, right? There was a smart journalist. They figured someone else will train me. So I, I ended up working on the Middle East, which you know set in motion my entire career to work on security-related issues in the Middle East. But it was it was by no means by design; it was complete chance on my end. So, what, where specifically in the Middle East were you working on in the early ninety-nine? In the early nineties, um, I was working on the Persian Gulf, and this is before the first uh, Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And so, when when the invasion happened, um, I got to be part of the government effort, which was tremendously exciting. Uh, I, I was not. A particularly important part of that, right? They're not going to give a junior analyst or most junior analysts, you know, tremendous um, uh, kind of freedom to do what they want in the in that critical situation. But I got to be part of a big team that was doing important stuff, and it was, you know, every day it was exciting to go to work. It really gave me a sense of what a place with a real mission is like, and my my experience is very positive. So in the in the early 1990s, you were work, you were a CIA analyst working uh, on the Persian Gulf. Uh, I mean, were you caught by surprise uh, when the invasion, when, when Saddam invaded Kuwait? What was that day like? Um, certainly that day was – it was not a complete surprise because there was warning leading up to it. And people, people were focused on this, right? It was not something that when it happened, everyone was like, oh, I had no idea it was going to happen. But it was not something that I at least several months before the invasion was looking at. Now, to be clear, I wasn't working on Iraq. And so the, the surprise then comes from the Iraqi side. And uh, but and and people there were uh, I think the, the postmortems would basically say uh, there were mixed messages coming out of the CIA where it wasn't you know 100 percent this is coming but at the same time there was there was considerable warning that this might happen. Um, so in that period, and I've always been curious about this because um, you know there's like a lot of, of fable and and mystique obviously uh, around the CIA but you know I take most of, of what the CIA does is 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 just analysis you know just just crunching data that's probably mostly open source data anyway but just applying um, a degree of of intelligence to to to, to that uh, data um, 
were you ever like you know in the room say with George H W Bush uh, advising him directly? Does that ever happen? Where you have like these junior analysts who are specialists on one particular issue advise the the president or have their analysis go all the way up to, to the president? Um, two different. I'll break that down. Uh, yeah, yeah. Certainly, um, in terms of my written analysis, uh, uh, yes, you know, junior analyst stuff goes to senior leaders all the time. Um, you know, it's vetted, and you know, in my day was vetted through several layers of management. My impression from from students there is it's vetted through a thousand layers of management now. But nevertheless, it's you know, a junior person often, quite often, a junior person stuff goes to senior leaders. Um, the uh, it is less likely for a junior person to be briefing the most senior leaders, but it still happens, and it especially happens on things that are more obscure. So let me be clear: I'm making this up. Uh, but obviously there are lots of people working um, the Syrian civil war right now or the Islamic State. So if someone needs to brief the president, it's probably going to be one of the more senior people. Uh, but let's say there's a significant terrorist attack that happens by a more obscure group, let's say a group in Bangladesh. Um, and again, to be clear, I'm making this up. Um, then whoever has responsibility for that part of the world or the, that group all of a sudden knows more than anyone else. And he or she is going to be in briefings with very senior people because they know the most. So one of the nice things at um, at CIA, at least when I was there, is that junior people can get a lot of responsibility. And that's a, that's a very kind of exciting and heady experience and for me was, was quite positive. Uh, so how long uh, did you spend at, at the CIA working on this issue? Um, I was there about uh, four years, I think. Okay. Is that like a pretty common you know, term of service? Um, I don't really know. I think that's uh, there's a lot of variation. You know, again, a lot of people stay for careers, but some go in and out in various ways. So a lot of people I, I entered with have moved on, but there are still when I go back there, there are still you know friends and colleagues uh, from when I from when I came in. So uh, why did you leave, and, and when did you leave? Um, I left in 2003, if I recall, or excuse me, 1993, if I recall, and um, it was in part it was I wanted to go back to grad school just because I felt there was a lot more I needed to learn. And it was good personal timing. My, uh, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, was off in grad school. And I realized that you know, I, was, I was not getting younger. And if I was going to be on a starvation diet, this was probably you know, my last chance to, to really do that. Uh, and beyond that, I, um, I'd had very positive experiences at the CIA. And my concern, strangely enough, was that my career might go downhill. Uh, just because I'd had these exciting moments and that this might be a time for me to look more broadly to try new things. Uh, but it was a very positive experience. And you know, I was certainly thinking one of the reasons I was happy to, not happy to leave, but willing to leave was because I was pretty confident I could go back. So I knew if I made a mistake or if I wanted to return, I probably could. And that, that was very reassuring. Uh, and oh, So where did you go to grad school? I, I did my graduate work at MIT. Which, you know, by reputation, of course, is a school with you know a very strong uh, technological engineering bent, uh, but it also has very strong social sciences. And the political science program where I was part of was a, really a product of the Cold War when they were mixing things like uh, nuclear weapons uh, with broader social science to try to understand what the Soviet Union or what China or other countries were going to do. And my program, uh, comes out of that. And I had some, I had some really great professors there and there's still a very, very strong security studies component at MIT. Uh, so what did you do your uh, PhD? What was your PhD about? Uh, my, uh, 
PhD was uh, political science and with a focus on international relations and comparative politics. My dissertation focused on uh, looking at why some ethnic civil wars recurred and others didn't using the Middle East as a as a way to study this. So I, I compared the various civil wars in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, in other places where they had happened, and tried to look at why some that, you know, a long time ago seemed to be a big deal died out, but others did not. And you're probably writing this in the midst of the, the Balkan civil war and, crisis, and that's right? exactly right. People, political scientists had gone from really focused on state to state conflict to looking much more at civil wars. And uh, I had a um, advisor there who was you know very deep in the uh, comparative politics world and looking at um, these you know, questions of ethnic relations and violence. And so it was perfect for me. Yeah, I remember there's like a whole uh, subset of like nationalism studies uh, coming out around that time. Uh, exactly right. Um, and, and so I guess what what did you find then? I mean, were there lessons that you drew from the Middle East that could be applied to to the Balkans? Um, certainly, I wasn't trying to apply it directly, but I, I really was trying to think of what's a toolkit. You know, what what uh, do governments have available to them? And, and they range quite a bit. You know, one of the one thing that seems obvious now, but at the time was you know, was less known and less studied was was simply the importance of having a high degree of security, that a lot of what you wanted was security first and then a political settlement. That, you know, as a, often we think of a political settlement as, you know, in order, to have, in order to end the Syrian civil war, you need a deal, right? And, that's, and there's a certain degree of truth to that. But if you want the war to, if you want to prevent the war from recurring, you need a government that can establish order because otherwise even relatively small disagreements can quickly escalate and the government won't have the ability to stop it. And so what we saw was governments that were relatively weak had much less ability to stop these. And so once you get a degree of security, then you have a range of strategies available to you. And this could be an inclusive one, right? You include people in government. Uh, it could be assimilation. There are groups in the Middle East, uh, you know, some tribal groups, for example, that effectively don't exist anymore. Um, and they've become part of the mainstream. These were very strong identities 100 years ago, but today much less so. And so I, I looked at an array of strategies available to governments and evaluated them. Um, sort of to, to, to digress for, for a moment, I'm wondering um, if you might apply that, that theory to the, the current Syrian civil war. You, you did a little bit, but it seems that that would suggest um, more what's now sort of the, the Russian position, which is to strengthen the, the, the position of the Syrian government as a way to uh, dampen the, the, the civil war. Um, there's a, a question in some ways, which is, in general, social scientists have found that uh, victory is very durable. Uh, so that doesn't mean the Russian position of Assad has to win. But you do want, you know, if you are doing an agreement without the ability to enforce it on the ground, without some degree of military victory, uh, it's going to be very hard to have it be sustained. And so I'm often, you know, leery of negotiations that are not matched by facts on the ground. Um, so what then would you suggest for, for this current round of, of Syria diplomacy that's ongoing right now, the, the, the Vienna process, which seems to be, um, you know, this idea that you could impose a, a sort of a peace agreement from on high? Um, yeah, I'm very skeptical of that. Uh, I don't think it's bad. The way I would put it is uh, – um, you know, it's he's one of the joys of being a professor, right? Is I can criticize others and not have to come up. Yeah, with you're not in the government response, anymore. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a, a joy. But what I would say is, 
Uh, it's not bad to have a peace deal on the books. Just don't expect it to happen in reality. But the hope is that um, you might have changes on the ground that change the military situation, change the balance of power. So a peace deal that right now is unrealistic might become realistic over time. And it's good to have that negotiated because uh, often there are windows. And if you have to kind of you know, start from scratch every time, you'll miss the window. Um, so, so getting back to MIT, so, so you uh, wrote this thesis. How, how was it received? How, uh, what did people think of it? Um, you know, in general, quite positive. Uh, one thing about my advisors who were quite nice is that they basically you know, wouldn't let me defend unless they were going to pass me. Right, well, so they're not going to set, set me up. And come the deck, I like. me, right, if yeah. I had, they had a problem with it, they would tell me to take more time. Um, so, in general, it was positive. I uh, ended up publishing it as my first book, um, so I was pleased with that. Um, and so, you know, uh, quite positive. It wasn't by academic standards. I would say it was kind of a single or a double, mm-hmm. right? So, it definitely, you know, did fine. But it wasn't a home run. It wasn't something that you know everyone reads and everyone knows about. That you know, occasionally you'll see a dissertation become a book and, you know, very impressively achieve that status. Um, so, so how long then, or did, did that experience make you want to pursue a career in academia? Um, it did in some ways, but at the time, my um, uh, then uh, girlfriend uh, was coming back to Washington and was going to work for the government. And I was, I know enough about academia to know that even the best candidate uh, can't be guaranteed a job at a particular school. And so I might have a chance of getting a job, but where I would be geographically could be anywhere in the country, if, if I was lucky. And so I oriented myself to work in Washington because I knew my girlfriend was coming there, and uh, in particular oriented myself towards think tanks. And while I was at MIT, I began to work part-time for the RAND Corporation. And so when I was done with my dissertation, I, I began working directly for RAND in Washington, D.C., uh, which which worked out well in terms of of geography, and also I found the work and the people quite interesting. Uh, while I was there, I also began adjuncting at Georgetown, which is how my uh, professional relationship with Georgetown began. But I really never thought it would turn into a, a full time academic position. So, what was on your radar? What were you studying uh, back then? In in what I, I guess is probably the late nineties. I mean, it seems like the the, the hot area is still kind of the Balkans at at this point. But you know, the Middle East is probably never far behind. Uh, that's right. It was a real mix. So some of it was uh, looking at the Middle East. Um, some of it was – I did a lot of work on air power and kind of different uses of air power because one of Rand's major clients is the Air Force. And so trying to think intelligently about how to use air power um, in limited wars, how to use air power in humanitarian situations. Um, and I also uh, uh, you know, did random projects on very different things. So I did some work on China, for example, which you know, I don't claim any expertise on, but was quite interesting for me to learn about. Uh, so one of the, you know, the good and bad things about RAND is you, you work on a variety of projects, um, at least I did. And that was, uh, you know, that was something that shaped a lot of my subsequent academic work. Uh, and so how long were you there in, in total at RAND? Uh, well, I, I began part-time in 95, went on full-time in 97, and left right around the beginning of 2002. Uh, so, uh, nine eleven obviously is a, is a huge inflection point and, and one in which I think probably, you know, helped shape some of your research interests, um, after, uh, nine 11. So, so where were you, uh, on nine 11? Uh, I was at Rand, uh, we were actually in a meeting discussing, it was a, a terrorism project we were doing. And so we were as a group of terrorism people at Rand sitting around and, uh, 
the Rand office in Washington is actually quite near the Pentagon. So, you know, we saw and heard the plane zoom by that crashed into the Pentagon. You know, let me be clear. I was, you know, far from any danger, right? So I don't want some people kind of, mm-hmm. you know, will play up. Uh, their proximity, you know, there was no danger whatsoever to me, but it was, it was, you know, quite immediate in my, my awareness. And it was, it was really remarkable. It was, you know, it was not, to be clear, it was not something I was anticipating and, uh, you know, in, in scale. And really, you know, obviously shaped shaped a lot of things. Uh, how soon, or or how quickly did was there just kind of this consensus that okay, this was obviously a, a Bin Laden coordinated attack? Uh, that happened, I think, within hours. Um, and you know, there's always a question of you know who knew what when. But for those who had been following terrorism, there was one group that seemed likely to do this, and that was Al Qaeda. Uh, there just weren't other groups that were likely to do this what kind of effect did this have on on the think tank world and on on the rand corporation i imagine you know before you were probably working on like a diversity and a host of different issues but then you know washington became singularly focused for the next you know 10 years it seems on on al-qaeda on terrorism uh did that um sort of shift in priority in washington reflect itself fairly immediately in in the think tank world or how did that process am, am i maybe assuming that process happened well it it, it varies by think tank uh, you know think tanks have very different missions and funding sources so rand you know rand itself has a lot of variance internally but a lot of the rand i was part of you know sees itself as advising government so if government is focused on terrorism or if it's focused on iraq or if it's focused on afghanistan Rand is going to try to be there to help it. So that can be a lot of different things, right? It could be, you know, thinking about sensor technology for working in mountains, right? It's an Afghanistan problem. Or it can be, you know, understanding Al-Qaeda. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of richness within that. Uh, but also, you know, Rand's, you know, the U.S. government still cares about China. It still cares about other parts of the world. So Rand would focus on lots of things. But other think tanks like Brookings, where I am now, um, tend to be, uh, They'll focus on, I would say, often more media concerns, although, again, there's variation. So you started to have people care about terrorism, but there wasn't much expertise on terrorism in the United States on 9-11. There weren't that many people. I did it part-time. There were some like Bruce Hoffman at Rand who did it full-time, but there were relatively few Bruce Hoffmans around. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you end up on, on the 9-11 commission? How did, how did that happen? Um, I left Rand shortly after uh, 9-11 to join the congressional investigation to 9-11. This was called the 9-11 Inquiry. It was the House and Senate Intelligence Committee's uh, joint effort. And it was really a predecessor to the 9-11 Commission and focusing on the intelligence effort. And um, I I found it absolutely fascinating. It was, uh, well, again, a lot of the stuff at the time was not known, so it was really an inside look at many of the issues related to um, U.S. counterterrorism. Um, and from there, after that, I, I went uh, to Georgetown and also to Brookings. Uh, but I retained this kind of 9-11 link. And when they created the commission, um, the uh, staff director, Phillips Elko, wanted me to be part of it because I had done a lot with the 9-11 inquiry. So it really comes out of the predecessor organization. So can you take me into like what that looks like? What does it mean to do to do uh, this kind of investigation? I mean, who are you calling? Like, what were you trying to piece together? Uh, well, if it's if it's nine eleven commission, uh, there are a lot of different aspects. Uh, so part of it was, you know, 
some very basic questions on what happened that day, right? So, you know, what were the um, police up to? What were the firemen up to? What was the decision-making process in the White House? Um, I was much more interested in not the day-to-day, but the kind of, you know, what our policy was before 9-11 and how we saw the danger and then how we responded. Uh, So part of the 9-11 Commission's mandate was to really look at all the relevant government agencies and suggest changes. So you're looking at track record, for better or for worse. You're looking at CIA, DOD, FBI, all these places. And so you have people who are focused on individual agencies. You have people who are focused on issues. You are doing – a lot of the 9-11 Commission was organized chronologically, so you're you're kind of storytelling. So you're tackling the the problem from lots of different angles, but with the hope both of explaining what happened, explaining what seems to be an apparent surprise – um, and at the same time, setting the stage for tr- recommendations to try to prevent it. What what deficiencies in in like the system did you personally uh, identify as sort of in, in need of remedy? Um, in terms of the uh, the the biggest one to me was the domestic response uh, in t- to terrorism before nine eleven. What did uh, you, you had, find? That, in general, the FBI was not focused on this issue. And the FBI, from a terrorism point of view, was focused overseas. Internally, it's not just that it wasn't talking to other parts in government. It, it wasn't talking to itself. Um, so you had a lot of real breakdowns. But I want to be clear, and I've become softer as time has gone on. Uh, time has that ha- effect on most of us. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, I've seen people go in different directions, yeah. um, which is that the uh, in general, if, if we'd gone back to 1999 – Right um, or 2000, and said, "What is you know how bad is the terrorism problem in the United States, not overseas, but in the United States?" Uh, you'd say, "Well, you know, we had a couple chuckleheads here or there, but Al Qaeda seems to be focused overseas, right?" And we do have these warnings that they want to attack the United States, but they don't seem terribly active here. And so it make it would make sense to not focus your resources on this, even though it would have been dramatically wrong. And so, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, so I I think my biggest uh, take was kind of how we were thinking about the problem domestically. But to be clear, I was making the same mistake. I mean, okay. So so it seems to me, though, at at this moment, um, we might be sort of trending, you know, too far in the other direction, perhaps, um, with with regards to the the ISIS threat. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, it it, it is like, you know, I just just received this email as I was being interviewed for something. And the, the the first question the, the the some person asked me was like aside from ISIS what's the most urgent world security concern right now and and my answer was you know I, I disagree with the premise of your question I don't think ISIS is the most urgent global security problem right now I mean it seems that when these incidents and attacks happen we tend to uh, overemphasize their relevance to say our our daily lives or our daily security and I'm wondering if if we may have swung the pendulum may have like swung too far the the other direction now. Um, I would say yes. I, I do think, you know, like everyone else, the Islamic State is a problem, but it's uh, less of a problem for the U.S. homeland, I would say, than for U.S. interests overseas, where to me, that's the bigger danger. Um, and we have a very impressive and massive government response to it. So in the pre-9-11 era, there just weren't many people focused on this problem. Now there are thousands and tens of thousands who are doing different aspects. So if you think about problems as questions about resources, I think there are plenty of resources being devoted to this one. And there are real questions. You know, I think one of the biggest failures after 9-11 uh, was resilience as a society. 
I think that we have to expect that some people will die from terrorism. And that shouldn't shut everything down. That shouldn't mean that government has failed completely. You know, there needs to be, of course, you can't have 3,000 people die. But we have to accept that sometimes the terrorists will get through and we haven't, right? So the result is that if you look at the post-9-11 era, um, you know, again, I, I would say I was wrong. And I thought it would be worse. I thought the terrorism problem would be worse. And it hasn't been. And yet it seems many people still see it as almost a failure story, even though um, you know, the bigger problem in terms of violence in the United States is right-wing terrorism. There has been since 9-11. Uh, the number of attacks is less than the 1970s, right? So there are a number of things that should be seen as positive from uh, fighting the jihadist point of view, but we don't tend to focus on that much. Uh, well, that's refreshing to hear. Um, I love when my, my assumptions are, are confirmed by, by guests. Um, so uh, we just have uh, about a minute left. I'd love uh, to give you the opportunity to plug anything you're working on right now, any new books, papers, anything we can look out for you in the future, in your future. Uh, I have an article coming out in Foreign Affairs uh, fairly soon that will look at Islamic State provinces, so look at kind of their global network and who they're working with. Um, and I'm beginning a, a book project on foreign fighters and not just Iraq and Syria, but the general phenomena. It's something I've studied and written on in the past in at article length, but I'm going to be taking an even deeper dive uh, for this book project. Excellent. And you're doing that all from, from your perch at Brookings? Uh, uh, Georgetown and Brookings. Georgetown yes. and Brookings. Great. Well, I'll be at Brookings, I think, in, in a couple of weeks. I'm moderating a panel um, at your, your the Africa Bro- uh, Growth Initiatives uh, oh, good. panel. So should be fun. Maybe I'll see you in the hallways. But thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I, I do have to let you go, but I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your uh, generalship of the security studies program in the uh, late 2000s. Uh, so thank you. My pleasure. I'll uh, talk to you soon. Oh, Take care. Okay, great. Thank you. Alrighty, thank you all so much for listening. That was a lot of fun, very interesting. Uh, great episodes coming up, so stay tuned. Subscribe if you haven't done so already. Leave a review on iTunes if you have not done so already. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Basically, Apple preferences uh, podcasts that have more reviews. If someone's for searching for foreign policy podcasts, for example, this will show up higher in the search rankings if you, dear listener, leave a review. All right, thank you guys. See you later. Bye.